all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. Today's tax maven has both a secret identity and a superpower. And we'll get to the secret identity later. But Steve Bank, the Paul Hastings Professor of Business Law at UCLA, can't see the future, but he can see the past, and he sees it clearly, which turns out to be quite useful uh, in his line of work. Uh, one, of the, one of the things to be clear is that um, it, it's not entirely unusual for uh, an opinion to be printed early in the history of the, maybe the 20, by the 20th century, it was a little less common, but just because of the ability to distribute. Nevertheless, um, the decisions you're, you're thinking of, uh, the um, Rockefeller decision, um, the uh, Marr decision, uh, these are big because they affected a lot of shareholders. The issue was uh, essentially in the, in the one case, it's a question of whether General Motors can reincorporate from Delaware to New Jersey and what the tax consequences would be. And so what was explosive about it in a lot of respects is that there were a number of um, shareholders who thought this is what happened here was nothing. I had stock in GM before. I had stock in GM after. Nothing changed. Uh, and so uh, why am I getting hit up with a tax? Steve is describing a perfect tax storm that was caused by the birth of the income tax converging with the rise of Delaware as the place that big corporations all wanted to be. When those reincorporations happened, two things had not yet happened. First, the Supreme Court hadn't yet handed down its Eisner v. McComber decision that would leave no doubt that even such purely paper transactions would trigger income tax. And Congress also hadn't yet stepped in to save the day by creating the idea of non-recognition which shelters some of those uh, paper transactions from immediate tax consequences. Well, so this, the, the events took place prior to 1918. 1918 is when the, the tax-free reorganization provisions came into place, the non-recognition provision for, for uh, exchanges of stock or securities uh, um, in, an, in a corporation. And so uh, the, it was a realization event, at least under the... the um, position of the IRS at the time, and there was no non-recognition provision. And so uh, the argument from the uh, taxpayers was that nothing of substance really changed. But the argument from the court is, well, something of substance happened. You were held um, a stock in a corporation, even though it was the same corporation, under New Jersey law. You obviously decided New Delaware law was better, was different, was, um, uh, was helpful. And so now you have stock in Delaware. So that must be different. So therefore, uh, it is a realization event and you have to pay tax on it. And so unless something special happens, you're going to be taxed though you sold the shares for cash and bought new shares. Exactly. And the real issue there was not necessarily that one corporation, but the fact that it meant that 
every corporation that had had a, a reincorporation merger during a period when lots of corporations were reincorporating from New Jersey to Delaware were potentially subject to uh, audit and tax. And so you're talking about lots and lots of shareholders. And so in that sense, it was a wide impact case, anybody who had appreciated stock uh, was going to have to realize the gain on that. Remember, the income taxes only came into being, the modern income tax in 1913. Uh, and to make things worse, the um, the opinions were didn't come down until 1921, but they concerned facts in uh, 1916 primarily, where the tax rate was uh, enormously high. Uh, it's the World War One era increase in rates. So, you know, in 1915, the tax rate is the top tax rate is seven percent. By 1918, it's 77 percent. So, uh, there are a lot of taxpayers who were getting hit with not just a tax on gain that they had been realized, but in their mind had never been cashed out. Uh, but you had people who were being taxed uh, at extremely high rates on that amount. Uh, and when you add to that the fact that uh, this was a period of time when Eisner v. McCumber had not been decided yet. That was 1920. And so you had um, – there was still a battle going on, if you can call it a battle in the intellectual world, between the accretion uh, or accrual method – version, the accretion method, I would say, a taxpayers, people who thought that they should have been taxed just on the rise in value, and the consumption tax people who thought it shouldn't be until you sell. And so realization itself was still a controversial concept at this time. So, you know, forget about that this should be non-recognition. People hadn't even accepted that this was realization and that, that should be taxable. Yeah. And then the Rockefeller case is interesting, partly because everybody knew Rockefeller, and that was certainly a big name. But, uh, but that was the forerunner of the modern spinoff. Uh, that was a transaction where, uh, again, you held one, you had stock in one corporation that had two operations, a production operation, production of oil, oil production, oil transportation. But they were regulated by two different federal agencies because this oil production and oil transportation, transportation is going across interstate, state lines, so it's interstate commerce. Um, and so... Uh, all they were trying to do was take your one share of stock in one corporation and put it as a share of stock in two different corporations with different businesses, but but you held the same amount of assets before and after. Uh, so that was the spinoff. And again, they're saying that was taxable. So there were a lot of people saying, hey, that's the transaction that, um, you know, should all we're doing is reorganizing. We're doing exactly the same thing. The difference is, is that even under the reorganization provisions, it wasn't clear that qualified. Uh, because reorganizations were about exchanges. Uh, and it wasn't until really the 1950s that you clarify that um, uh, Rockefeller is a good spinoff. It was, it's, it's, uh, the way I teach it in classes, Rockefeller is the good spinoff and Gregory V. Helvering the bad spinoff. And in, in the 1950s is when they decided good spinoffs are okay, bad spinoffs are not. And all of 355, Section 355, is about... Um, what are uh, what's a Rockefeller like trying to preserve it? Rockefeller transactions while uh, preventing Gregory tra transactions. Steve's research and writing not only adds texture to our understanding of complex technical provisions like those governing reorganizations, they also challenge a lot of what even experts think they know. His tax law review article, "When Did Tax Avoidance Become Respectable?" provides a great example. It's a question that. Um, shocks people in one sense because 
there's a notion that is is tax avoidance respectable, and then in another sense, there's this there's the notion that when wasn't respectable. Everybody tries to avoid taxes, right? Um, so one of the things that I look at in that piece is uh, a lot of people would go back to um, a quote from Learned Hand in the 1930s. Um, Anybody can arrange their affairs as to to keep their taxes as low as possible, and and. Uh, they view that as well. Th- see, tax avoidance was was respectable, was permissible at that time. But the point I make in the paper is that actually in the 1930s, the reason why Learned Hand had to say something like that, and other judges did, was because tax planning was under assault. And I don't mean tax evasion was under assault. Tax planning was under assault. Uh, so under um, in, in the 1930s, uh, in an attempt to figure out what caused the crash and the ensuing uh, Great Depression, uh, they looked at tax avoidance. They looked at reorganizations. They looked like the transactions we just discussed. They looked at um, basic planning techniques, uh, some of which included capital loss carry forwards and uh, using uh, capital gains, uh, doing capital gains transactions rather than ordinary income, uh, basic things. And they, they sort of labeled these kind of like the 10 deadly sins. And uh, in 1937, uh, FDR had uh, a, a tax bill that was completely devoted to tax avoidance. Uh, lots of moral rhetoric about uh, how improper some of the activities were. So tax avoidance was, uh, um, it was done. Uh, it wasn't talked about much. It was not something in polite company you would admit. Um, and uh, it was definitely, there was a moral tinge to it. So one commentator said it had an aspect of the crusades about it, the kind of religious um, uh, or prohibition about it. You know, you're trying to get out the people who were uh, committing these sort of sins of tax planning. And and a little of that continues into World War II uh, during uh, sort of the patriotic fervor of, of a sacrificing for war. But in the post-World War II period, uh, there is a dramatic shift, and it really occurs where I trace it to the 1950s. Uh, and the way I did this was um, I looked at uh, uh, the presence of advertisements in newspapers for tax shelters, tax planning, tax avoidance, uh, both in the classified ads and in the um, display ads. And so I cataloged these in in the leading newspapers of the time all across the country and found a dramatic increase in these kinds of advertisements uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And what I suggest is that uh, it reflect. It's not a perfect proxy for kind of the respectability of tax avoidance, but it reflects a certain acceptance, a certain willingness to talk about, advertise, to put your name to a uh, transactions which. Uh, you might think would be, certainly in the 30s, would have been considered shameful. Uh, So tax shelter became a commonly used word. You'd advertise it. Not only did you advertise tax shelters, but the the, the phrase became so kind of well accepted that in the classified ads, when people are trying to sell homes, they would say, this is a perfect tax shelter. Um, So individual people would do this. But then you had books published on how to hide, you know, avoid taxes. um, And it wasn't just... In generic terms, they were very specific: oil shel- tax shelters, um, uh, uh, you know, tax shelters dealing with cattle, tax shelters dealing with land, tax shelters uh, dealing with the, uh, your home. Um, they would talk about 
uh, and then it, in the 60s, they started talking more about tax havens. And so there's open advertisements from Caribbean countries uh, and European countries, um, you know, the, the biggies, Switzerland, Luxembourg, um, but also the Bermudas and, and, and other countries, Cayman Islands, openly advertising, move here or move your money here to avoid taxes. So, uh, and, and so I suggest that, um, you know, there are a variety of things that, that led to this, but, but uh, you know, principally among these were you know, really high tax rates in the post-World War II period and expansion of the base left a lot of people um, tr- both trying to avoid taxes and left a lot of legislators um, encouraging that effort. Uh, with um, special exemptions. And then when you get special exemptions, you get the people just to the outside of the special exemption arguing that they are justifying their avoidance by um, uh, kind of not reporting or, or claiming that they were covered by or just saying, look, this is, they're getting theirs, I should get mine too. And so tax avoidance eventually snowballs into a pretty respectable activity. In fact, not just respectable, but one which if you didn't engage in and in that kind of tax planning, you were pretty much a chump. You were kind of a, um, uh, you know, you, you you were letting other, you were paying like a Sunday school donation. You were just being, you know, uh, virtuous, but not really smart. I mean, so what you're what you're saying is interesting for a couple, for all sorts of reasons. But in terms of the timing, it's so different both on the front end and the back end from the conventional story or what I think the conventional wisdom is about tax planning and tax shelters. You know, tax planning is associated with Gregory in those early cases. Obviously, it was fine um, because the judges said those things. Uh, and then for tax shelters, I would always uh, place it later. Uh, so tax shelters really uh, taking off. You know, I remember uh, uh, hearing about all the ads placed in the late 70s um, uh, as being the time. But it sounds like uh, the timing is different on both sides. No, it's definitely a real expansion in the 50s and 60s. Um, and that's an expansion um, that is... Uh, uh, controlled for expansion newspapers and newspaper advertising during the period. So it is, uh, it happens much earlier. Um, it's certainly in the 70s, it's going on too, for sure. There's a period in the 60s when they're trying to shut it down. Kennedy uh, tries to shut it down, but it is, uh, continues a pace through the 70s and into the early 80s. And it's really not until obviously the 86 Reform Act that you see some backlash to this. Uh, but there's, there's a backlash politically, obviously during some periods of this time, but um, but much of this uh, tax sheltering and the word tax shelter even comes up in the 50s, 50s and early 60s. Steve's research also reveals that tax avoidance itself had to cheat death once or twice. In particular, there was an effort to expand the withholding we all know from our paychecks uh, was proposed to ex- be expanded to cover investment income. It was uh, those efforts were met by both predictable and surprising sources of opposition. So there's a variety of uh, attempts, even going back to the origins of wage withholding, which is in uh, in the World War II. The original wage withholding proposals included dividends and interest, and. Uh, dividends and interest eventually fell out of the bill, and that was because of industry opposition. And you can see there's a variety of reasons why industry would be opposed to it. One is they don't want to bear the costs of collecting on this, uh, um, but they also have a particular self-interest. Um, uh, the money that they're sending out um, is 
being taken from people who are effectively going to blame them. It, it reduces the dividend rate, reduces the interest rate. So in their minds, they have a lower effective rate. It also is money, especially with interest, where if it's not withheld, it likely stays in the bank's hands, and the banks can use that and make money off of that. So they were losing a huge amount of money. So they were opposed to it. And never, but, but beyond that, wage withholding um, at least ostensibly seemed easier uh, because you knew – for a full-time worker, you knew how much they made. And so the withholding rate could be adjusted, could reflect kind of their personal circumstances. Whereas it wasn't quite as clear with dividend and interest withholding, which was typically not the entire income for any individual, certainly not one interest-bearing account. And so they didn't do it. They didn't do it in the 50s. But in 1962, Kennedy proposes this. And it's like the big thing. Kennedy is going to—this is kind of the backlash to the 1950s-era tax avoidance, tax sheltering movement. And, and so he did a variety of things, one of which was we need interest and dividend withholding. Uh, and, you know, you might have thought this was going to be uh, an easier sell because, okay, there was some opposition to dividend and interest withholding in 1943. But um, now that we've had wage withholding for 15 years— um, you're almost 20 years almost. Uh, it it shouldn't be a uh, controversial element. It's it's sort of a natural extension. It also seems like an equitable extension because there are people who their income is primarily from capital income, and that capital income was not reached at all uh, with w- withholding. And so this is a way to spend it at least somewhat. Uh, and yet it sparked a firestorm of populist protest, uh, thousands of letters, uh, people reporting hundreds of thousands, what, you know, individual senators, Paul Douglas, uh, Illinois, reported 100,000 letters in his office alone, uh, you had thousands a day, the Senate uh, press, the Senate mailroom was, was overloaded, people, the offices had to hire more people just to get all the letters on dividend and interest withholding. And the letters were not from kind of the wealthy people who would bear the brunt of such withholding in, in the sense that they had the most dividends and the most interest, uh, but it was from average people, average people who didn't even realize in many cases that they were had to pay taxes on dividend and interest. They, they were complaining about this new tax on dividends and interest and, you know, the, the, the sort of the hapless uh, staffers in, in the House and Senate offices were trying to explain, this is an existing tax. You're supposed to pay it already. You just, you, this is just a collection mechanism. But huge populist revolt. And, and so in the, in the article, I'm looking at why did this spark such a populist result, uh, um, revolt? Uh, um, you know, populist in the sense that, I mean, they had rallies outside, you know, the Capitol building. I mean, Apparently, they had reported like 750 people showed up, which is for for a for a dividend interest withholding. You know, a, a, you could see protesting tax rates maybe, but this is pretty interesting. It's a, a mechanism here, a collection mechanism. Uh, they had um, uh, newspaper editorials, letters to the editor. Um, uh, it was quite an outcry, and 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 I look at you know what what kind of cause this what what my interest in the issue is not just why did people not want to do this but why why this and why um particularly why was it sort of the middle and lower income groups that protested in made this a populist cause for what ostensibly seemed like a, a way to more equitably 
allocate ta- you know, the, ta- the tax collection burden. That, that was, that's really what I'm focused on. Steve's research on tax avoidance seems to have made him just a little bit famous among those who follow players like Ronaldo and Neymar. Well, I, I am probably, I mean, to the extent famous is, a, I mean, in, in a limited sense, but to the extent I'm famous in tax history, it's in, a, it's in the phone booth in which people operate in this area, I suppose. But, but where I'm probably better known, if you were to ask someone, I guess it would be in soccer law. Which is, uh, which is not so surprising for a tax person. Uh, where are some of the most famous tax avoidance cases right now? You might say in Europe it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the Facebook or Google or something like that, but, or Amazon. But um, actually, uh, the most famous cases are Ronaldo and Neymar and uh, you know, Mascherano and uh, Mourinho and a bunch of names from European soccer circles. So in some sense, tax avoidance... Uh, the common link is tax avoidance, right, uh, for soccer law. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who are soccer fans and tax fans, uh, Steve Bank is your guy. Uh, check him out uh, both on, you know, on his uh, writings and also on other competing podcasts. I don't know if they're competing. Um, so, Steve, I have one more question for you. Um, mm-hmm. And this one is really high stakes. Um, I have here uh, this very nice uh, NYU Law graduate tax pencil, uh, which, if you answer this next question correctly, uh, is yours. All right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I just, I just take take a minute. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the taxable value of that. Uh. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. So, all right. So this is a question, um, and it's a history question. I don't know if you're gonna know it, uh, but uh, let's see. Um, you know a lot of things, so maybe you do. Um, so, when did the United States sign its tax treaty with Russia? So that's a question. I'm gonna give you three possible choices. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. we're going to see if you can either just by knowing it, uh, part of your vast store of historical knowledge, or just from understanding the, the period and the, the, uh, the history here. So mm-hmm. one possibility, A, is 1984, B, is 1973, and C, is 1992. So uh, what do you think? Say 1992, um, just because of the fall of the, um, of the wall and the, and the creation of kind of a new detente with Russia, but but not my area, not exactly what I do, so that's my guess. Well, see, this is why Steve is so good at tax history. Um, he knew it. He knew it without knowing that he knew it. 1992, uh, that replaced a um, 1973 treaty with the USSR, which was no longer, just as you suggest, uh, and so we had our treaty with Russia. Uh, and 1984 was our treaty with uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, so um, that was uh, surprising to me, uh, the timing of that. Now, now here's interesting fact. When the uh, check-the-box rules came out for entity selection, and they were identifying which, um, if you were an ineligible country, right, where, the in, where they didn't have a tax treaty that satisfied, uh, um, I think it was even as recently as 2006, maybe, the USSR was still on there. So um, that was because some of the former Soviet republics, I think, still... Um, were signatories on the USSR treaty. See, I, you know, I shouldn't have tried to stump Steve with the with the history question. That was uh, that was a bad idea. So I want to do uh, two quick shout outs. So I learned this factoid from Miranda Stewart's uh, Global Trajectories of Tax Reform, uh, the discourse of tax reform developing in transition countries, published in the Harvard International Law Journal. Uh, and I also want to, um, in addition, thanking Steve Bank for being with me today. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. 
Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web, uh, visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, uh, both in person and online, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. His name is Fernando. He is from Guayaquil, Ecuador. And the quote that he offered us is from International Taxation in a Nutshell. And that is written by Mindy Hertzfeld and Richard Dornberg. Basing tax jurisdiction on nationality can be justified by the benefits available to nationals. For example, in a very real sense, U.S. citizens have an insurance policy. They can return to the United States whenever they want, and they have the protection of the U.S. government wherever they are abroad. Tax payments contribute to the availability of that insurance. Please email us at info at if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, uh, please uh, email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.